to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, welcome back, everybody, to Hotel Bar Sessions. My name is Lee Johnson, and I am here with my fabulous co-host, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles Peterson. We're kicking off the new year, 2022. We all have high hopes, high, high hopes. (laughs) for the new year because we are delusional. <laughs> I don't know. Did I tell you I've changed my name to Eeyore? I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's not much of a tale. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's kick this off. Uh, let's get your drink orders and our rants and our raves. I'm going to start with you today, Rick. What are you drinking and what's your rant and rave this week? So I've been digging around for a new winter cocktail. I tend to drink Manhattans or straight whiskeys. And so I discovered an an old New Orleans drink from the 30s called the Vieux Carré, which is whiskey, cognac, sweet vermouth, Benedictine is in it, and it's really delicious. And it's a great drink for winter. So I'm drinking a Vieux Carré. My rant this week is Florida. (laughs) Just the whole state? I don't think I need to say anything more. (laughs) Right. Period. (laughs) In scene. (laughs) Um, I happen to be here and I'm experiencing Florida in its full glory. My rave this week is beef tenderloin. I'm a meat eater, and for Christmas Eve, we made uh, a beef tenderloin, and man, that is delicious. We had sandwiches the next day, and in fact, we're still eating sandwiches from it, and it's still (laughs) delicious. So I'm raving about beef tenderloin. Sorry, vegans and vegetarians. Very nice. I wanted to say this thing when you talked about the Vucade in terms of a New Orleans cocktail. I want to give a shout out to the Sazerac lounge in the old mm. Roosevelt Hotel yes. in New yes. Orleans, yeah, yeah. which is the most amazing cocktail bar I've ever been to in my entire life. So to our listeners, if you ever get to New Orleans, make sure you get to the Sazerac Lounge in the Roosevelt Hotel. That's a beautiful place. It is oh, a gorgeous. gorgeous place, yeah. All right, speaking of cocktails, Charles, what are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? I am going to keep the cocktail seasonal and Caribbean, so... I will be enjoying a nice ginger beer with white rum. The ginger is great medicinally for scratchy throats. It opens up the nasal passages and the the white rum gets you drunk. So (laughs) I'm going with the ginger beer laced with white rum. And once again, because my in-laws are from Barbados, I I will stick with the Mount Gay Silver. So Rami tells me that he keeps that in stock. Mount Gay Silver. So that's my drink. My rant is breaking the social contract. I mean, and I've written a book about this. I've written a book about the hypocrisy of the American system vis-a-vis African-American citizenship. But to see President Joe Biden basically say, hey, kids, in terms of what the federal government can do in terms of COVID relief, uh, I got nothing for you. And I'm going to turn my back on you and I'm going to let the states handle it. Now, I don't know if this is a result of just the administration being too tired to continue to fight reactionary Republican or fascist party state governments who are just going to take everything to court. 
Or if this is, which is more than likely the truth, simply listening to pressure from corporate America because they want to keep the profits flowing. As if this were fucking Dune and the CEO of Delta Airlines is Baron Harkonnen. So (laughs) my rant is breaking the social contract. And, you know, when people come to the gates of wherever in a legitimate revolutionary impulse, don't ask why. Facts. I'm Eeyore. Eeyore with bite. (laughs) Now, my my rave is a really lovely film that I I was able to view Christmas night with my relatives. It's a 2016 Canadian-American independent film called Gene of the Joneses. It is the directorial debut of Stella Maggie, and it stars Taylor Page, a a fantastic African-American or Afro-believed Canadian actress. And if you were to think about secrets and lies, but placed in the context of a family of black women in Brooklyn, then this is your movie. Mm. It is brutal in its humor, dark in its character portrayal, gorgeous cinematography. It just catches, clearly they shot in the fall and, and scenes of Brooklyn in the fall with the natural sunlight. It's just amazing. It's gorgeous. It's 90 minutes and I can't wait to watch it again. So my rant is discovering the gym, Gene of the Joneses. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I'm definitely going to check that out. Please do. You'll love it. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and ranting and raving about? So I have been on a Buffalo Trace kick recently. It's a really great bourbon. I know both of you are very familiar with it. Uh, So I'm going to have a couple of fingers and, as Rick says, a rock of (laughs) Buffalo Trace. (laughs) (laughs) This week, I am ranting about climate change. So having just enjoyed recently a 75 degree Christmas uh, and many weeks of basically September weather in December, it's just brought the weight of concern about climate change back to me. And of course, this is something that should be weighing on me all the time. But the recent weather in combination with having seen the Netflix movie Don't Look Up oh God. Uh, has really has really kind of brought it home to me again. And I got to tell you guys, I mean, we should have an episode on climate change, obviously. But, you know, sometimes I'm just like, we're just screwed. Like, it's yeah. you know, there's nothing yeah. we can do at this point. The hurricanes and the tornadoes and the floods and the, again, 70-degree Christmases, it's just, it's hard to see how we're going to find our way out of the damage that we've already done. Yeah. This week, I am raving about the legal marriage swag bag. <laughs> So, you guys, I got hitched. Got legally married. (laughs) I did. Oh my God, congratulations. I did. I did. Somebody tamed this lion. Uh, (laughs) I I recently got hitched in a top secret wedding. So my partner and I have been engaged for more than a year. Our whole plan all along was to wait until COVID waned enough that we could have an actual ceremony, bring our friends in town, do it in the way that we really want to do it. But we had to make a decision about health insurance. Mm, (laughs) So that required speeding things up a bit. And we decided to 
go ahead and get legally hitched last month. It was only our family. So anyone who's listening who feels bad that you weren't invited, like literally no one was there. But our parents, our county commissioner, Tammy Sawyer. Thank you, Tammy Sawyer. I like her. She's the greatest. She is the greatest. She married us. Wait, you're a thruple? Oh, she performed the <laughs> no, ceremony. No, no. Okay. <laughs> oh, things are getting pretty progressive down in Memphis. I mean, <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. Oh, and you know, I guess we're it, trailblazers. That's a power trio right there. That is definitely a power oh, trio. Oh man, the world Memphis is not ready for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but now we're both insured at a reasonable cost, and uh, yeah, it's really great. But I do want to say, I, as all of my friends know, I have been sort of opposed to legal marriage, like aggressively opposed to legal marriage for most of my life. And for exactly this reason, which is that 50% of people in America are not married. It doesn't seem like you should get this amazing swag bag just because you managed to, against all odds, find the love of your life. But, you know, I found mine. And so, yeah, thanks for the presence, the state. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that's one instance where the social contract is actually working out for people. Well, it's not working out for 50% of the people, but it's working out for me right now. All right. So, uh, Rick, you are in the hot seat today for our first hot seat of the new year. What are we talking about today? Well, since it's the first episode of the new calendar year, I started thinking about New Year's resolutions because this is the time when people make resolutions. But then that got me thinking about the notion of resolve in general and what does resolve mean? What does it mean as a sort of character trait, like to say someone has resolve? Or if I say I am resolved to do something, what all is involved in that? And then, of course, that got me thinking, well, there's musical resolution, which means a different kind of thing. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk in general about resolve. All right, well, I'm really excited to talk about this right here at the beginning of the new year. I don't typically make New Year's resolutions. When people ask about this, I always use that quote from Oscar Wilde, who said that good resolutions are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. (laughs) So so that's generally how I think about New Year's resolutions. But yeah, Rick, well, actually, both of you, do either of you make New Year's resolutions? So before I answer, Lee, can I ask why you don't? Is it simply because they're meaningless or... No, I I actually do have an answer for this. So not because they're meaningless. And I think that they are a good psychological motivation for some people. I think for me, I don't want the pressure of failing. And so uh, actually almost two years ago now, I quit smoking cigarettes. And when I did, I told my partner, well, my legal spouse. I told my legal spouse. (laughs) I'm only going to refer to her as my legal spouse now. Uh, I told Cassandra, I think I'm going to quit smoking. And I said to her that day, If I do it, I don't want you to congratulate me for it. And of course, if I don't do it, I don't want you to remind me of it. I don't want to make this a thing. I just want to do it 
and not have the pressure of, oh my God, I smoked a cigarette or feeling like I failed. Weirdly, it's the resolution resolving to do it was getting in the way of me actually doing it. Mm. I just needed to change my habits and not make it the center of my life. So that's my reason why I don't make New Year's resolutions. I quit smoking a year ago, New Year's Day. And I did not make a resolution to quit smoking. And in fact, I'm back on it. I mean, I went six months without smoking anything. Without That's awesome. Without no, that's vaping. impressive as hell. That's really impressive. Yeah. The problem is that I don't want to let myself down. And yeah. you don't do that. If you just quit smoking, then you just quit smoking. If you yeah. say, I make a resolution that I'm going to quit smoking and then it doesn't work out, then you've let yourself down and you've kind of set yourself up for failure. It's, it sounds that we all agree because I don't make resolutions either. I tried it a couple of times. And I think my resistance or refusal to make resolution is that A, it's constraining. To me, I f- it feels like an artificial imposition upon the self. And I just know my disposition for things to happen. I have to make these small, minor, normalizing adjustments. And then the things that I want to accomplish get accomplished, but to make some big pronouncement at the beginning of the year, I'm going to lose 15 pounds, you know, and, and now you just live in, in a prison of your own shame, guilt and, and self-policing. And that's not fun. I like the Beckett line of fail better. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and by not making a resolution, I feel like I can fail better. I mean, I do agree with you. There is something about New Year's resolutions in right. particular. Mm. There's just all this cultural weight right. on right. that particular practice. I mean, it's not like in the rest of my life, in whatever, April, I don't resolve to do something and do it. But, <laughs> but there's something about making a New Year's resolution that, I mean, it's like a wedding vow. Says the newlywed. Right. Yeah, says the newlywed. Like, I'm promising Ooh, someone's something. got marriage on the brain. <laughs> Did I mention we're both insured? <laughs> I resolve to maintain my insurance. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's like promising something in public to mm. everyone mm. and, you know, making this covenant with everyone that I resolve to do this and you all resolve to hold me accountable to this resolution. And that's just not a covenant that I want to make with everybody. <laughs> like, <laughs> first thing in the year. Right? There is something about New Year's that making a change on the first day of the year, it, it's kind of a symbolic beginning. And yeah. it's nice to ride that if you're actually going to make a change. It's, without, it's ritualistic. Yeah, that's right. Which yeah. I think is part of its yeah. power. But the problem is that most of the sort of typical resolutions are related to addictions of various kinds. That's so true. And that's any addiction is hard to kick. So the resolution that you officially do this and say, I resolve, I'm going to drink less or I'm going to quit smoking or I'm going to eat less. There is so much shit physically, mentally involved in that, that when you fail, the fact that you've made a resolution, that fall is harder, I think, than an unresolved failure. Well, I think what happens, and this gets to what Lee was saying about this articulation of a public covenant. Hmm. And and I think part of the challenge, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more as we go along, part of the challenge is that you've made this covenant to where you are really saying to the community, I want you to be witness to this. I want you to participate in this. I need you to. 
engage mm. with me in such a way to accomplish this goal. When, as Rick said, so much of addiction is about the internal work that people have to do. Yeah. And no matter what the surrounding community, no matter what spectators, no matter what friends or neighbors may say or do for you, at the end of the day, it has to be internally motivated. It has to be internally driven. And this public pronouncement is really just a waste of everyone's time. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So, Rick, what do you think is the difference between the resolve that one has in making the resolution or articulating the resolution and the resolve that one has in executing the resolution. Because I think that it's hard to resolve yourself to articulate a resolution, but that's a horse of an entirely different color than the resolve it takes, as you were just saying in the earlier segment, to actually execute whatever actions it takes to do that. Yeah, and and, you know, when I started thinking it'd be interesting to talk about resolutions, and then I started thinking about the larger concept of resolve, I thought, well, with or without the official resolution, or as you put it, Lee, I really like it, like the vow, (laughs) that even without the vow, it does take some, as Charles put it, some kind of internal work and an attitude coming from the interior of my life, not just psychologically interior, but the interior of my life to say, you know what? Smoking is really excellent. It's one of the best fucking things that human beings can do, but you just can't do it anymore. Sorry. And and to hold that, right? That takes something, and I think resolve is a nice term for that. So what's the difference between that kind of resolve and the resolve to actually, in every minute of every day, change your habits so that you don't smoke? Yeah. Well, would you call? I don't even know how I would call that resolve. That's a discipline that is different, I think, than the, as you just described, the psychological, spiritual, maybe even social and political resolve that's about recognizing a problem and committing oneself, at least theoretically, to bringing that problem to some kind of a resolution. It seems like the resolve, and I mean, there's so many different valences to the word resolve, right. but right, there's, right. A, there's a different kind of resolve that we see in the discipline it takes to change habits. As a former cigarette smoker, not as you know former as I'd like to be, but for the most part, <laughs> right? Damn hotel bar sessions and your colleagues that still smoke out in front of the hotel, damn it. <laughs> 
But it seems to me that, at least for me, the decision I made to stop smoking was one of self-preservation. Something clicked inside me and said, look, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to die sooner than you normally would. And then I thought about all these other considerations and responsibilities that I had to my family, my kids, my fear of, of certain types of pain. And that feels a little different from the artificiality of this public vow or this covenant, which doesn't seem to come from a natural place of realization, right? Where I've gone through these particular steps and I've done this reflection and in this epiphanic moment, it's like, oh yeah, I need to do this for X, Y, and Z reasons. The the resolution as we're talking about it in the context of, of New Year's resolutions, it sounds like St. Valentine's Day, some gimmick that the marketing person created so they could sell you more damn diet pills. I don't know. To me, your description, Charles, reminds me of the Seinfeld episode where he goes to rent a car and they say, oh, we don't have a car for you. And he said, well, but I made a reservation. Therefore, you have a car for me. And she's like, well, we have the reservation. We just don't have a car for you. He said, well, (laughs) perfect description of my New Year's resolution. So, So he says, he says, well, but that's what the reservation is for. And she says, I know what a reservation is. And he said, I don't think you do. Because anyone can take reservations. The taking of reservations is easy. It's the holding of the reservation. And I, I think that's what you were getting at, Charles, with resolution. You know, I resolve that I'm going to quit smoking. That's easy. Like, anyone could do that. Right. But what's more complicated is the holding on to that, like... Every day, I am not a smoker, or I'm not going yeah. to smoke. Or what's what's the emotional? What is the actual psychic weight of that? Right? Because I love the great line from Game of Thrones, the novel series: "Words are wind." I resolve January first, drink less. Well, words are wind, but what is the investment that one is bringing to those words that actually make them a real thing that will unfold within time and space? I might want to disagree. I actually think that it is hard just to make the resolution. But now that I've quit smoking cigarettes, in retrospect, when I describe my decision or why I didn't do that earlier, I see that I just didn't want to. It's not that I didn't understand that it was a problem. I just didn't want to do it. And so just getting to a point where it's like, this is something that I want to do That's not an easy thing to do. And I like the way that Charles earlier described his resolutions as always involving, I think you said, some kind of self-preservation. Yeah. And I'm wondering if both of you guys, if you think that every resolution and maybe even every instance in which we would use the term resolve has to involve something that we recognize as a problem. Yeah, so it sounds, Lee, like you're pushing for a phenomenological analysis here. <laughs> so, like, And one of the keys to doing a phenomenological analysis is to, you know, vary it and see this is definitely not resolved, this definitely is resolve. And then we could start finding the nuances. So, like... Do we just mean what people call willpower? Is that the same as resolve? But I think, Charles, when you talked about self-preservation, there was an element to resolve that never occurred to me, and that is self-preservation pushed forward into the future, right? So there's always this, I am going to be different into the future. And I think that's a crucial element of resolve that doesn't belong to willpower. 
Yeah, it's like what Spinoza would call kanatus. Right, yes. I want to persevere. Right. I want to keep existing. Right. You know, and, and communally based, too. Because I always think about resolutions and what's the incentive, who benefits. Because in my own experience, I stopped smoking cigarettes because I have young children. And I'd love to see them grow up. I'd love to be healthy enough to engage in their lives as they grew and went off to college or maybe possibly hat trick to Lee, got married or, you know, <laughs> all the things that people do in the natural functioning lives. I wanted to be able to participate in that. And I knew that smoking at the furious pace that I was smoking at that point in my life, that would not have happened. There were moments where I really thought if I keep this up, I'm going to have a heart attack before the age of 50. That's how much I smoked. Mm. So I think that's an important thing. Once again, what's the psychic weight? What's the incentive? What is it that you bring to this that makes it a very real and concrete reality for yourself versus just the abstract, oh, I want to lose whatever, or I want to gain whatever. Hey listeners, it's a new year and it's kind of coming as a shock to all of us that we're pushing up on the end of our third season here at Hotel Bar Sessions. As you know, HBS has so far remained commercial free and we've managed to keep afloat without any paid sponsorship despite our constant appeals to Fireball and Tito's to call us. Nevertheless, Podcasting is not a cost-free enterprise, and so we'd like to gently solicit you, our listeners, to consider supporting us. We've set up a Patreon page where, for less than the price of a cup of coffee a day, cue the Sarah McLaughlin track, you can help Charles, Rick, and I ease the expense of keeping our semi-intoxicated philosophical conversations going. So please visit patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions where you will find five different support levels from shots at only $4 a month or cocktails at only $8 a month to more generous levels of commitment like our designated driver level at $12 a month or the dude level at $20 a month. And for our listeners who are swimming in patronage cash, we're also offering a Medici level at $50 a month. And yes, in case you were wondering, there are increasing benefits of access and swag associated with each Patreon level. Though, to be honest, we're all socialists here at HBS, so if you really want something that we're offering to the rich, just email us at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or comment on one of our episodes on our YouTube channel or our webpage at www.hotelbarpodcast.com, and we'll def hook you up. To our super wealthy listeners, though, hey, Zuck, hey, Bezos, hey, Elon, y'all can just ignore the previous caveat and go directly to patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions and be sure to subscribe to hotel bar sessions at the highest level. All of you, though, we really appreciate you listening and we'd really appreciate your support. Now, back to the episode. So I, th I think we saw the difference between resolve and willpower, 
But there's a psychologist, Angela Lee Duckworth, and you can find TED Talks and YouTube videos that she's done. And she argues that if you show her a class of students, she can determine who's going to be successful, not on the basis of IQ, not on the basis of income, not on the basis of any number of factors, but she says solely on the basis of what she calls grit. And so I know you all watched one of the TED Talks. I sent you a link. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about it because I got a lot of thoughts about it. But whenever I hear, we did a study in the Chicago public school system, that's a red flag for me. That is, <laughs> you know, I mean, it really is because basically you said, you know, I've already established this whole of, of public education in America. And I know that you're talking about studying African-American children. And basically I've read into a discussion that I think she makes, which is so profoundly conservative mm. in terms of placing the responsibility of children's success upon and children, right? Because we're still talking about students. This grit is this internal dynamic that they have that seems to exist beyond, I don't know, social economic foundations or institutional support or federal or societal investment in infrastructure, all these things, right? So this idea of grit that she talks about, it seems such a random and a deeply reactionary way of thinking about how society, I think, is failing students. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about education. But this idea of grit seems to me wants to pin success upon simply the internal dynamics of a person's personality. Mm. I completely agree with you on that, Charles. And I do want to say that, you know, Memphis has identified itself as the grit and grind city. And so it's a part of the civic ethos of this city that I also embrace. But I can see a lot of the problems with that sort of an ethos. And I just want to give a shout out to Robin James, a philosopher friend of all of ours, who has also done a lot of work on an adjacent concept, resilience. Mm -hmm. And her work shows that this is a deeply neoliberal concept, right? And I think that the same goes for grit. I do want to say that I think that discourses about resilience and grit and things like that are prescriptively problematic. Nevertheless, we live in a effed up neoliberal hellscape and descriptively, I'm not sure that I disagree that it's not true that having a kind of sense of grit and grind and resilience is not actually beneficial to people in this neoliberal hellscape that we live in and also trackable. I, actually, I do recognize that there is something called grit and I recognize that there are people who have it, right? I think about our season two discussion about the hustle yeah, and these yeah. people who have the ability to, within a certain context, I think back upon the father of, of scam rap mm. uh, in Detroit and you know, this young man found a way within his limited circumstances to survive, to gain the things they want, to pursue whatever goals that he has. So I recognize that that exists, but I just found very troubling the ways in which Dr. Duckworth um, articulated that. There was, you're right, it spoke to a certain neoliberal sensibility that wanted to escape any social responsibility for citizens. And one of the core notions or core operations in neoliberalism is the kind of absolute privatization and individualization of everything, right? Right. And so that's the difference between, you know, old-fashioned liberalism, where you could have a social contract, as Charles was ranting about its violation. But now everything is 
privatized and individualized. And Charles, I agree with what you were saying before, because now she's to the point where she's saying that, in fact, it's not the Chicago public school system that is failing students. They're failing themselves. Right. And then the other part of that whole thing I don't appreciate, in addition to the fact that it is completely blind to racial differences, completely blind to economic differences, completely blind to all sorts of social economic divisions and hierarchies we have in this country, On top of it, I'm really against any solution that really amounts to, well, just buck the fuck up. Right. Yeah. Right. It seems that Dr. Duckworth needs a little CRT in her life. (laughs) 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 But no, you're right. And and that's really what she's saying. Come on, kids, show some balls. Yeah. But I know you're living in the public housing, and I know your family probably only has like $20,000 a year as an income, and I know you go to bed hungry every night, and I know that the textbooks that you're reading are from 1986 and still say that Ronald Reagan is the president, but come on, kid, just show a little grit, and you can get it done. You can get a PhD like me with all my privilege. Yeah, well, I like what you said earlier, Charles, about this is good advice for someone who's just trying to survive. And this is where I think that, again, descriptively, it's pretty spot on. Prescriptively is where it becomes problematic. Right, because right. what people really need are, of course, broad social, political, structural changes. And those require social, political collective resolutions. And again, entirely typical of neoliberal thinking is we don't even want to acknowledge that that's possible for societies to make resolutions, right? Where it's like, we all need to do this. Uh, We'd much rather just dump it on the shoulders of these poor third graders in Chicago who just don't have enough grit. But, you know, Lee, and and you're saying that you hit on something that I think is important to the notion of resolve that does not belong to what we normally call grit, and that is change or difference. So grit is kind of like the ability just to hang on. And there's no necessity that a person change or anything change. They just, as she says at some point, it's stick-to-itiveness. But as you said, what we need are resolutions, namely, shit's got to change. And so resolve has this notion, you know, in a strange way, it's something like, from now on, I am going to be different. And that's not just grit. That's, That's something else. So then if you work that in the other direction, it's not that the students in the Chicago public schools need grit. The students in Chicago public schools need us to have resolve to change the Chicago public school system. Yeah, the students in the Chicago public schools need funding. Right. And yeah. That is not, right. Yeah. you know, and that is not about grit, right? I, I completely agree with you. And it occurs to me that the language of grit and resilience and maybe even perseverance It's all reactive language, right? It's like the world is happening to you. How can you survive it? Just to call back again to Charles's notion of the survival mindset. Yeah, it's not about building a world. It's not about making a world. It's just about not dying. Right. And and not challenging those things in the actually existing world right. that are making your survival difficult, if not impossible. Right. Basically, in, in the most graphic way I can think about it is what this whole idea argues for is, I need you to be like a cockroach 
who can find its way into the warmth of this big comfortable house and be satisfied with that. And if you make it in, yes, that's an amazing quality and characteristic to have. But you're still a cockroach. But you're still a cockroach, right? <laughs> you're, just a, you're just a cockroach with skills. Don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> but I also think about, here's what's interesting, and there's such a Horatio Alger aspect yeah. of this whole mm-hmm. discourse that Dr. Duckworth lays out in the TED Talk. And I don't know if you guys remember this. I think, Rick, you may be old enough to remember this. Lee, not so much, because you're fresh, just just a, a flower, <laughs> a bud, a bud of a person. But this, People the, often describe me that way. Remember this grit newspaper? Yes. Yeah. Which was all about young people who had the stick to and the fortitude. They go out there and, and sell this bullshit family daily, and they make money. And this is a, a means by which become this Horatio Alger type of individual. The fact that the founder of Grit newspaper creates it in the late 19th century during the Gilded Age says a lot. So I just, I, whenever I hear that word, you have to have grit. And as much as I enjoy the Coen Brothers version of True Grit. Just this idea that we expect seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds to somehow unlock the magic box of what it takes to, su- to survive in a predatory, capitalistic, a marginalizing, racist, homophobic, sexist, classist society. And if they don't have it, then, well, I don't have to tell you, kid. Yeah, call back to last week's episode with Jason Reed. Grit and resilience and perseverance really are about accepting the working conditions as they are yeah. um, and working harder. Yeah. Working more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the hotel bar, you can catch us on Twitter at hotel bar podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. So, honestly, that discussion in that last segment is giving me pause about my resolve to not make New Year's resolutions. (laughs) Because I think the way that Rick said it, which is making resolutions is an active way of building a world, of committing oneself to change and not just reactively accepting the way things are and trying to muddle your way through it, sort of now makes me think there's a lot more positive aspects to resolutions even ritualistic, culturally imposed New Year's resolutions that maybe might be worth engaging in, despite my reservations. But I think this goes back to something Charles said earlier in relation to New Year's resolutions, that maybe the problem we have with New Year's resolutions is that they focus on the pronouncement of it. But it Uh. seems like the actual resolution is all of the things that follow up from that, right? So the resolution is not, I'm going to quit smoking. The resolution is, today I am not smoking. 
Tomorrow, right. I'm going to try not to smoke. And all of the modifications in your behavior and your attitudes and your thinking, that's the resolution, not just the pronouncement. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think that a real resolution would be one, just to pick the smoking example that apparently we're all resolved to maintain, but like the the real resolution would be to personally start committing yourself to making those changes. Right. I'm not smoking today. I'm not smoking today. Right. I'm going to change these habits. I'm going to change these patterns. And then when you get to the point where you wake up in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, I'm a non-smoker. Right. Then you make the resolution to continue to be that. You know, the pronouncement of the resolution, I'm going to be a non-smoker, is not going to make that happen. So, Lee, when you put it that way, it reminds me a lot of a notion that the philosopher Al Lingus, who was a colleague of mine when I taught at Penn State, he talks about something called the word of honor. And one of the places he brings this up is in his book, First Person Singular. And he gives the example of someone saying, without having at that point had any training or anything like that, I am a dancer. And Mm. the reason why he calls it the word of honor is because he's interested in all of those changes that then go on in that person's life and psyche and affective response to the world and so on that bring about the truth. I am a dancer. For him, the word of honor is not the pronouncement, but it's everything that comes after in which you honor your claim, for example, I am a dancer. Small aside, every time I read it and I first heard him give this as a paper, I couldn't help but thinking of, now I forgot his name, the little elf from Rudolph who says, I want to be a dentist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) He's really interested in that. I I don't know if Al would like this term, but it's an existential revolution in a way. Yeah, I like that because when we talk about resolve, it really does have, I mean, of course, many meanings. The three sort of most obvious are to like settle or find a solution to something, Right. right? Like resolve a problem. Right. Second is to decide firmly on some course of action. So to resolve to do something. Right. But then the third sense is the resolve of doing it, right? Like the determination to do that thing that you resolve to do. Right. In order to bring about a resolution to some problem. So it seems like what you're describing as the process that one has to go through when one wakes up in the morning and says, having never had any dance training, but I know that I am a dancer. That's when the third sense of resolve begins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I resolved in this sense over the summertime that I was going to learn Irish, the language. Oh, nice. Okay. So at first I just made the resolution, but to paraphrase Jerry Seinfeld, I didn't hold the resolution. (laughs) (laughs) So you didn't wake up and say, I am an Irish speaker. Right. Well, I did. I did. Except I did nothing about it. And so finally, I'm like, you know what? The minimum I could do is get Duolingo and start learning Irish. And so I did. And now five or 10 minutes every day, I do my Irish on Duolingo and I am an Irish speaker now. 
What I like about Al Lingus's notion is that it's not just individualistic in a liberal or neoliberal sense, but rather it's this notion of an existential commitment. So it's not willpower, it's not grit. To say I am a dancer, to say I am an Irish speaker, is a different kind of, I, I, I keep coming back to it, existential attitude that is not the stick of grit or the, well, willpower is just, we only use that term when we want to blame someone, right? Well, you don't, you're, you don't have strong willpower, and so like it's your fault that you can't quit smoking. It's a reformation of the self. You've made yourself a different person in that pronouncement. And now that you've decided that you're a different person, now you have to stock that new person with the things that make them a new person. Wow. Right? I wake up and say, I'm a dancer or I'm an Irish speaker. Now I have to learn how to dance and I have to learn how to speak Irish in order to be the person that I've declared myself, that I've committed to being. Because that's the thing we haven't talked about, transformation and resolution. Hmm. Right? We've talked about the challenges and the problematics and walking up the hill, but we haven't talked about what it means to get to the summit, to get to the peak. But I have a genuine question because I really do think that there's a real significant difference between resolving something in my own mind and stating it to other people. Just like there's a difference between making a promise to yourself and making a promise to others. And I do think that there are some changes that I've made in my life that I was only capable of making because I said it out loud to somebody else and I knew that somebody or some group of people out there that were going to hold me accountable to that. And then there are other changes that I've made in my life that I was like, this is between me and Lee. Right. Either I'm going to do it or I'm not going to do it. It doesn't matter if other people, like I'm not going to feel bad if other people see me not doing it. This is something that I have to figure out for myself. Um, And so- Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I didn't put my... Now that I'm in Florida, I don't follow any rules anymore or any laws. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to ask this as well. I'm sure this will be cut out. But Rick, do you just take like a curtain rod and white curtains with you wherever you go? Because you had the same backdrop in Poland. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, so we rented a house in both. I'm in a new location now. And last week I was in a different location. And it turns out a lot of white walls are in my life. (laughs) (laughs) That metaphor is powerful. So, Lee, you seem to have marriage on the brain. And so, (laughs) I mean, I. And insurance. (laughs) But I've often wondered you know, my ex wife and I, we didn't want to get married on our first date where we agreed that marriage is stupid, except for two reasons insurance and immigration. And it turns out in our case, we needed to get married for both of those reasons. But then. There is something when you actually, no matter how small the ceremony is, when you say out loud to your, at the point partner, you know, at the pronouncement of the words, your then spouse, in front of other people, that at the very least, I am going to try my damnedest not to be the one that breaks this apart. 
there is something, Lee. I, I think I agree with you. There is something not just incredibly powerful about that, but that in a sense, the people witnessing this are saying back to you, okay, I'm going to keep you to that. Yeah, I mean, we had this as a part of our ceremony. And again, it was just our immediate families there. But I think this is not uncommon in marriage ceremonies where, of course, we said our vows to one another. But then there was a moment where the officiant said, everyone present, do you promise to support them, to do everything in your power, to enable them to hold true to the vows that they're making to one another. And that to me is the only reason that I ever wanted to get married in the first place. It was never about legal marriage. It was about having that moment where we can make promises to one another in front of the people that we love and the people that we love can make promises to us individually and to us as a couple. And, you know, we did that. I think that is a, to me anyway, it's a very meaningful promise that we're making to one another. And the fact that it's in front of people and it's not just me, it's not just her, it's not just us, but that there's this whole community of people who are like, this is something that we're invested in. We're all making a communal resolution to resolve to make this work. That is something that I think is very different than what I say to myself in my own mind. I really need to do this. I'm committing myself to doing this. It's important to me but no one else knows about it. Right. So I, I'm trying to think in my own experience, what are those? So when I quit smoking, well, and I don't know for you all, but the time I quit last year for six months, that was first of all, the longest I've ever gone, but I've, I've quit before. Well, there's a great Mark Twain line. Yeah. Right, right. it's smoking, easy, I've done easy. it a thousand times. I've done it a thousand times. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I mean, I often think of the other, I, I don't know who the originator of the joke is, but when my doctor said to me, you know, if you quit smoking, you'll live longer. I said, really? Or will it only seem longer? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like P.T. Barnum. <laughs> Actually, now that I think about it, Rick, you a lot of times sound like P.T. Barnum. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Are there recordings of P.T. Barnum that I didn't know about? No, I don't mean his voice. I mean, just like the things he said. Right, oh my like God. a sucker born every minute. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, I, I, instead of P.T. Barnum, I'm thinking um, Fields. W.C. Fields? You, you're, yeah. more, you're more W.C. Fields. <laughs> um, so this last time when I quit smoking, I didn't tell anyone. And then slowly people started to notice. And one of the reasons I didn't tell anyone was because there's something about quitting smoking and failing at it that I don't want you saying, oh, that's too bad. You were doing so well. Right, oh. right. Then I just feel worse. And, and so it was important for me to make that resolve myself without involving same. someone else. Yeah, I had the totally same experience. I don't even think I told anyone outside of my household that I had quit smoking until I had not been smoking for almost a year. Right. No, same here. Same here. And and there's something so powerful about without you having to make the pronouncement or you not having to create the banner, but for someone to say, oh, you don't smoke anymore, do you? Hmm. And then that's when you realize I've won. I've accomplished a goal. That's the moment when they say you're a dancer. Yeah. Exactly. No, no, yeah. no yeah. you're right. Yeah. That's it. When people recognize that you are a new and different person, that they see the person that you've committed to becoming 
or that you knew yourself to be? You're both dancers to me. <laughs> You're my tiny dancer. dancer. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me closer, tiny dancer. <laughs> All right, guys, this has been a really awesome discussion, honestly. And actually, it legitimately has made me rethink the value of New Year's resolutions, which I know none of us make. But since we're here and we're recording, if you were going to make a New Year's resolution for 2022, the shitstorm that's about to happen, (laughs) what would you resolve? I'll go to you first, Rick. So I would actually make three of them. Two of them are related. One is to be better at responding to emails. The second is to be more timely in returning students' work. And Mm. the third is to be better at promoting the podcast on social media. Yes. (laughs) Please make that vow in front of both of us. (laughs) What about you, Charles? I will make the commitment to think about the glasses half full. Mm-hmm. I know. I mean, me personally. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to be Eeyore anymore because I think about the episode with Jason Reed and he talked about the great line from the character who said, if you only tell people there's a problem, but don't give them a way to face the problem, they yeah. just learn how to live with the problem. And so not only am I trying to maintain my agency, but also think about ways in which the things that, that I find challenging, how could I commit to working around and resolving, fixing, curing, Moving beyond it. I'm, I'm trying to be an optimist. <laughs> nice. Nice. You don't have to go full optimist. Just move from Eeyore to Pooh. <laughs> well, have you seen my sweatshirt? You guys can't see it? No. My cousin-in-law gave me this for Christmas. This hoodie says optimism. <laughs> nice. I was like, nice. Did, have you met me? But okay, thank you. <laughs> it's warm and it fits. <laughs> what about you, Lee? Oof. I mean... Yeah, oof. That's how you start with that. Yeah. (laughs) 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 I mean, there are lots of resolutions that I should make exercise. I should eat better, all those sorts of things. But if I was actually going to make a resolution, I think it would be to say no more. Mm. (laughs) I have a habit of taking on more than I can really handle. Yeah. So I, I just need to say no more often. Amen, sister. No, everyone, no. 2022 is the year of no for Lumja. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so it looks like Rami, our good bartender Romulus, has vowed to maintain the actual bar closing time again in 2022 and kick us out when it's time to turn the lights out. Because Rami knows how to say no. That's Rami's He knows how to say no. He knows Rami's how to a say man of no. resolve. He still lets us in here, though. So <laughs> thanks, Rami. So this has been a great conversation. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to a new year of podcasting with you two tiny dancers. Tiny dancers. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something, but I can't get it out. (laughs) Take care. Blue jean, baby. L.A. lady. Seamstress for the band.